0: If you have your scriptures, uh, turn to John chapter 12 and uh, keep your finger there. We're going to uh, look at a story there, which is really quite phenomenal, and uh, we'll come to it in just a, just a couple moments. There are sermon note sheets at starting point, once again, and they're posted online. If you are wanting to have some more in-depth way of thinking back on what we're talking about or following along, you can grab those. Charles Vance Miller, I don't know if you've ever heard that name, but Charles Vance Miller was a Canadian bachelor, lawyer, businessman, and practical joker. He died on October the 31st, 1926, and his will became a test of human nature. He left valuable shares from his will in the Ontario Jockey Club to three men, two vocal opponents of horse racing, and one who would never be allowed into the prestigious club. He bequeathed $700,000 worth of shares in the O'Keefe Brewing Company to seven Protestant ministers who were voices of prohibition. Driving home the fact even deeper and being more of a joke was that he didn't even own the shares. <laughs> to three lawyer friends who despised each other, Miller left equal partnership in his J- Jamaican vacation home and Miller kickstarted something that became known as the Great Stork Derby a contest promising the bulk of his inheritance to the Toronto woman who gave birth to the most live children in the 10 years following his death Now of course Miller didn't know that the roaring 20s of prosperity would be followed by 3 within 3 years of his death by the Great Depression. By 1933, 30% of Canadians were unemployed. Imagine that in 1933. And so the Derby became more than just fun and games. By October the 31st, 1936, 10 years later, four women were tied with nine registered births apiece. Nine in 10 years, Annie Smith, Kathleen Nagel, Isabel McLean, and Lucy Timlick received $125,000 each at a time when the average weekly income was $12.50. Making Charles Miller, the childless bachelor, the father of 36 children. And it makes me wonder are there any Smiths, Nagels, McLeans, or Timlicks in the room? you may want to buy some shares in Ancestry.ca and just check things out a little bit. Now, that's quite a hoot, of course, but Miller's true motivation is penned in the opening lines of his will, which reads this, and it's very sobering. This will is necessarily uncommon and capricious because I have no dependents or near relations and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death, And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. Charles Miller gained and he saved, but he recognized he had not given all he could and he called himself, therefore, a fool. We're considering the stewardship of our lives, To gain all we can, save all we can, and today give all we can, we ask the question today, how will we share what we gain and save for the glory of God? From the beginning of the church, giving was one of the key practices that set the followers of Jesus apart. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 45, summing up the first wave of the growth of the church as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people of God, Acts reads this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And this lavish generosity was instrumental in the spread of the gospel. And it was directly related to having been with Jesus and understanding what God had accomplished in Christ. Last week, Pastor Marcus so, well, so did a wonderful job of reminding us to remember the poor. Remember the poor. The Jesus-centered life responds to the needs of the world. And this leads us to John chapter 12. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 12, there is a party thrown in his honor because of this in the town of Bethany. Listen to the story. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. What a scene, eh? He's right there with them. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. But he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, But because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. They needed a new church treasurer, huh? Verse 7, Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, Mary, Lazarus' grateful sister, takes this pound, this pint, of expensive perfume, It was actually something known as spikenard, which was an oil from a plant in the Himalayas. So think about it. This wasn't 2020 when you could order that on Amazon. It took a little bit to get that from the Himalayas to Palestine, okay? And it is exceedingly expensive, And Judas, the betrayer, is quick to point out that Mary had just dumped 300 denarii worth of perfume on a rabbi's crusty feet. His concern for the poor, though, cloaks his true nature. The comment of John in verse 6 is that all the disciples knew that he was helping himself to the money bag. And so how much did Mary waste? Well, one denarii in that day was the average wage of the common worker. So Judas has an eye for the value of this. He gets it, and he cringes as a year's worth of income drips away. A year's worth. What do you make in a year? And Mary dumped it out in one fell swoop. The fragrance is a stench. To Judas. And then Jesus says that very interesting thing, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now is Jesus saying that there is a time to ignore the poor? No. He's directing the Jewish mind back to Moses and the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, in the instructions on the Sabbath year, Moses commands this. He says, "'Don't harden your hearts. Give freely and from a free heart, for God has rescued you.'" And then verse 11 of Deuteronomy 15 says this, "'There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land.'" So what has Jesus just done in Bethany at the party thrown in his honor? He's essentially said, number one, he's as good as dead. He is being anointed for burial. And he elevates lavish generosity as a direct sign of knowing the liberating, rescuing power of God. In other words, you're going to always have this command as the people of God. It's the incarnated presence of the Son of God that is going to come and go right now. And Mary has lavishly and joyfully, open handedly given because God's power had transformed her world. Her resurrected brother is sitting at the table. Giving isn't about rules or proving you're pious. It's a joyful response to having encountered the power of God. And sometimes it's reckless and scandalous in the same way that God's generosity towards sinners like Judas and like us is reckless and scandalous because God wastes goodness on us all. And Mary's generosity was the result of encountering the power of God. Now, Jesus' rebuke of Judas is actually very telling. He says essentially to Judas, you are a hypocritical taker, and you are criticizing the generous one. Deuteronomy 15, verse 9 had said, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. An unworthy thought is to know the power of God as deliverer without having it transform your view of the poor and what you have. See, Judas had seen the Son of God raise Lazarus from the dead, but his eye is on the money bag. It's tragic. Judas' heart is unmoved by grace. Stubborn. And Mary's sacrifice, on the other hand, is the overflow of grace. And Jesus simply celebrates generosity, period. Worship and wonder erupting in scandalous generosity go hand in hand. And this is the Christ-centered way that went with the church everywhere she went in the world. And it's the way that God has grown the church to be including even us. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul now writing to Christians in Corinth. The church has grown from Jerusalem, where there's words in Acts chapter 2 were happening, all the way through now into Corinth, which was a Gentile, narcissistic, wealthy city. And he's radically calling Gentile disciples to give generously to Jewish background followers of the way back in Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through this, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform, this giving, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is an overflowing in many expression of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, your, for you their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I have to say that last line is so often taken out of context. The gift, the indescribable gift that's being described is a, a financial giving from Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians, a crossing of the divide and a living out of the good news. So let's note a few, number, few things from what Paul's saying. Giving is never under compulsion, but is the response of knowing God's lavish generosity. God never compels anyone he reveals and he invites. Giving is a response to the God who by the miracle of his grace and the power of his spirit has rescued us. Giving doesn't, isn't done to prove yourself and giving isn't done because you feel guilty. Giving should be a party. I love tax return time. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay. Uh, each year... We have a giving party with our kids. Our tax return is the opportunity to give more lavishly. And so we ask our kids the needs that they've heard of, or we have a, as a family have heard of throughout the year. And then we make this big grid on a mural paper on our dining room table, and we distribute $5 bills and $20 bills to our kids. And we go around the table, piling up these workers and organizations and the needs with cheerful giving. And God throws a party when the lost coin is found. And he is scandalously and cheerfully generous. And we are invited into that party. How could you make giving more of a party than a burden? second god is our giving is a sign that we trust god listen the subtle danger in saving all we can wisely as we should is that we can become stingy givers in giving we declare that god is our provider that god is able to actually outprovide for us and so we give freely from what he has provided for our needs and the needs that his spirit will awaken us to. He will enrich us, Paul says in verse 11. He says, God will enrich us in every way so that we can continue to give. Third, giving breaks down walls and is a witness to the power of the gospel. Now, this is crucial. This is, In some ways, it's the primary purpose of what Paul's saying because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and he is a... Jew. Okay, he's an apostle to the Gentile, but he is a Jew. And the glorious outcome of the Gospel of Christ is that Jew and Gentile are one because of Christ. God has made a new humanity possible, and Roman culture did not emphasize generosity, particularly to the peoples they taxed to build their empire. And so Paul is saying the gospel of the new kingdom has arrived in the world in Jesus Christ. And so submit to this new Lord, not Caesar, and give as people who know the generosity of God. This is going to awaken something. It's going to awaken thanksgiving and mutual prayer. And it will bring Jew and Gentile together because generosity breaks down walls and demonstrates the gospel. And so the first followers of Jesus lived a life, a life shaped by this enormous generosity. In the 16th century, Martin Luther said this, there are three conversions for the follower of Jesus, the heart, the mind, and the purse. Have you experienced a full conversion? God provides for people that we don't even think we should. he should. Have you ever thought of that? God is generous to people that if it was up to you, you wouldn't be generous to. Peoples who definitely need to be treated with such grace. And God saves even the most unlikely and the unworthy. He saved you and me. The Holy Spirit transforms us into the most wonderful of beings, fully alive, never to perish, the interpretation of grace in the world. And we need our wallets saved too. In Acts 20 Paul roots the stewardship of his life in something Jesus said which isn't actually recorded in the gospels but the early church clearly understood that Jesus had said this Acts chapter 20 verse 35 It is more blessed to give than to receive More blessed to give than to receive what a rebellious countercultural statement that is Do we believe this Jesus way is true that it is actually more blessed to give than to receive Listen, we need the Holy Spirit every day when we are bombarded by th- but with lies that receiving is more blessed than giving. Popular culture is even exposing this deception. Teen sensation Billie Eilish uh, took a mittful full of Grammys last weekend in case you were following along. Her hit song, Everything I Wanted, sounds like a cultural lament. Listen to the words. I had a dream. I got everything I wanted, not what you'd think, and if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare. Jesus calls us to the dream of the upside-down kingdom, generous, generous kingdom of God, where we do we just croon on with Billy and others. Living generously, my friends, you see is a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline why do you think churches have offerings? Is it just a commercial break? Or just, just to pay the bills? No, listen. When we gather, our songs declare another king, which, by the way, should make us sit here going, and as we sing, going like, are these songs elevating the glory of Jesus in the world? That's what matters most, not whether I like it or not. Is it elevating Jesus? Is it a song over in the heavenlies over this city, joining the chorus of heaven? Our songs describe another king. Our sermon, this moment, calls us to another way. And the offering builds the habit of a generous community. The offering is ultimately not for us because we give a lot of it away. It is a declaration of death to self as we release our hand from the coin and say in community this matters. Generosity matters because no good in the world will happen without generosity. The offering is practical worship. It teaches us release. Where else do you experience that? We are part of a culture that is living like a cut flower. It looks pretty but it won't last without a generosity revolution. And Christians should be at the forefront by gaining all we can, saving all we can, and giving all we can. StatsCan revealed that in 2017, 26.8 million Canadians filed taxes, yet only 5.3 million reported donations. 19%, that's StatsCan research. 19% of Canadians reported donations in 2017, those latest stats. And this doesn't account, of course, for crowdfunding, you know, all those GoFundMes and all that stuff, which is growing, and by the way, it's good. But 2017 crowdfunding stats revealed something very interesting as well. Crowdfunding statistics showed that only 18.9% of crowdfunded projects went to social causes. The vast majority went to personal projects or startups or kickstarting which could be a good thing to help somebody start gaining all they can but it's a sign you can give without changing the world and here's another stats can wake up call the average canadian donor is 55 years old the average canadian donor is 55 years old And yet we have the latest cell phones and we're happily tithing tithing to Starbucks. Listen, this is not a lack of capacity. This is a lack of obedience. Of knowing your work and your money are tied to something greater than your own stomach. It's a question of whether we know the gospel, a generosity of God towards sinners. And so to those of us under 55... If we don't start building a discipline of Christ-centered living and generosity now, it isn't going to get any easier as the bills pile up. And you will increasingly, I will increasingly find myself living with no room for generosity, only token crisis-driven giving, which is not sustainable to change things. And this is one of the reasons that we're inviting our kids right now to consider how they could adopt one of our ministry partners as a church for this year so that they're awake to the needs of this city and realize they have something to offer and can make a difference already in the world. The world needs you. And we who are a little bit older, we need you younger ones in this room to keep pushing against the selfish culture. And here's where the rest of us need to admit something. Younger ones, push against the selfish culture that we have created and brought you into. The trajectory of depleting generosity is not toward a better world. Telling you right now, it is not toward a better world. But Jesus calls us from the small life to the joyful imitation of the best boss ever who is scandalously generous. Now, what can guide us in our giving of all we can for the glory of God? Let me just point to a few things briefly, including some stuff from John Wesley, who inspired Arthur Guinness 250 years ago. Number one, we're always stewarding what isn't ours, but is our responsibility. It's all God's. We have no disposable income. But God entrusts us with some of what he has to steward and care for well. Animals simply consume. Squirrels might save, but human beings steward to the glory of God. Wesley said this in his Old English. Render unto God not a tenth, not a third, not half, but all that is God's, be it more or less by employing all on yourself, your household, the household of faith, and all mankind in such a manner that you may give a good account of your stewardship when ye can no longer be stewards. Stewarding our responsibilities, and there are many. You all have responsibilities in this room. Stewarding those responsibilities and providing for the marginalized and the spiritually lost is not a matter of percentages but is the fragrance of the Christ-honoring life. We are always stewarding what is not ours, what has been assigned to us, and we are always servants, gaining, saving, and giving what is a gift. Secondly, and this one seems, should seem obvious, but I think it needs to be said, we're not giving all we can without actually giving it. Sometimes we say we're saving to give, but we may just be retaining like Charles Charles Vance Miller or criticizing like Judas. Good intentions do not equal generosity. And third, when we give, we are committing an act of treason because spirit-led giving is, is an act of treason against the tyranny of money. We repudiate by giving idolatry, selfishness, and pride. In giving, we celebrate our eternal hope. We declare that in Christ we are content and we reject the seduction of content. Giving fights against the reign of darkness. And when we give corporately as a community, we stand together against the individualism and selfishness that is rampant among us and in our own hearts. And so giving is spiritual warfare against the devil who seeks to rob the dignity of humanity and the earth of the goodness of God. And so genuine goodness is never cheap. It cost God his son. And Frederick Lewis Donaldson gave a sermon in London in 1925. He named Seven Social Sins, which Gandhi actually republished in his own uh, magazine a few months later. Donaldson called his culture to to account for the following. And listen carefully, this is almost a hundred years ago. Here's the seven social sins. Politics without principle. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience. Knowledge without character. Commerce without morality. Science without humanity and worship without sacrifice. And these social sins nip at our heels and we can point to them in our own culture and we should repent where we see them in ourselves. Which brings us back to Mary and her perfume because we have encountered him who is the resurrection and the life. And so we live in and engage the world as those who pour out and embrace a life of sacrificial worship. And one of the primary ways that is witnessed is in our giving. And so let us worship, friends, and let us love, and let us give as those who are always recipients of a grace and a calling that we have not deserved. And that leads us to communion today. When we come to the table of the Lord together, we're coming recognizing that a great sacrifice has been made on our behalf, right? A great sacrifice was poured out. And nothing that we can give could earn it. But we live as a response to this. Now this week I was, I shared with you uh, a little while ago about my regret about how I walked with Amy this in the last couple of weeks, and just aware again of my own brokenness. Like, ah, it wasn't intentional, but it was just deaf and, un- and wasn't the way it should have been. So I become aware again of this deep need in me to receive and live in the grace of God and this grace that he has poured out over us as sinners. So listen to what Jesus says. He takes a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said to him, Oh, sorry, I went too far. Started too late. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so as we gather at the table together, we come as those confessing. We come as those who've received grace beyond grace, gift beyond gift. We have been given to more lavishly than we can ever give. And we come as those being ready to say, Lord, I give myself to you and I give my wealth to you and I give my little to you. I give everything to you for your purposes, for your glory. Make me a wise steward of life, Lord, a wise steward of this gift. So would you prepare your heart, give you a few moments of silence, just talk to the Lord and do what you need to with him. Jesus, we recognize that what you thought we were worth took an amazing sacrifice. And so we don't want to worship without sacrifice. We don't want to give you what you're worthy without sacrifice. We give you ourselves. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. Thank you that you've ascended to the Father's side. And you've sent your Holy Spirit. And you're among us now, speaking to us and leading us into abundant life. So, Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for the testimony of these people, the places you've called them. Lead us now, Lord, and meet us at the table, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.